Our coverage continues now with Allison Camerata. Hi, Allison. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Have a wonderful holiday, Casey. Great to see you. Thank you. Good night. Good evening, everyone. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. Sources tell CNN that former Vice President Mike Pence may be open to telling federal prosecutors what he knows about Donald Trump's efforts to stop the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. Tonight, we have more on what he might tell them. Plus, it's been a horrible 10 days of mass shootings in the U.S., from the murder of three UVA students to what happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs. And then last night, six people were shot and killed in a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. Four people are still in the hospital tonight from that event. Is there any way out of this awful cycle that seems to be one of our national pastimes? Other countries don't endure this hell. What is the answer? to ending mass shootings and this gun violence epidemic. We have a lot of people here with us tonight that have ideas that go way beyond thoughts and prayers. All right, so we have a lot to talk about. Let's begin with the Justice Department seeking testimony from former Vice President Mike Pence, CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance has been working this story for us. So Caitlin, what's the latest tonight? Well, Allison, the Justice Department approached Mike Pence's team weeks ago, wanting to talk with him in their criminal probe into January 6th and the moments after the election. Obviously, they're looking into Donald Trump, the White House, everything that was going on there to try and disrupt uh, potentially Congress from certifying the presidency and from allowing Joe Biden to become president. In this situation, our reporting is that Mike Pence is open to discussing a possible arrangement uh, with the Justice Department where he could provide testimony. So he would be a witness in this sort of situation. And we know throughout these past couple of weeks, Allison, the Justice Department has been carving out information around both Trump and Pence, right? They've been looking at the conversations the two would have had. We know that they have brought in Pence's top deputies, Greg Jacob and Mark Short, into the grand jury. They brought them back a second time into the grand jury in recent weeks then uh, because they had declined to answer some, some very, very deep questions into the heart of the Oval Office. Now they're sharing them. And so now the question is, will Pence also fill in whatever blanks are left, will he choose to speak, and also how aggressive will the new special prosecutor, uh, special counsel Jack Smith, be in wanting to move this forward and potentially have more negotiations with the Pence team? Um, So, Caitlin, of course, you remember that uh, Vice President Pence had closed the door to testifying before the January 6th committee. He said this in our CNN town hall last week. Congress has no right to my testimony. The very notion of a committee on Congress, in Congress, summoning a vice president to speak about deliberations that took place at the White House, I think would violate that separation of powers. But so, Caitlin, clearly he sees the Department of Justice differently in a different category. Yeah, Allison, he said no to Congress, uh, but Mike Pence is out there sharing things that he had never shared before this year. Uh, So he just released a book. And in that book, one of the things he writes about are direct conversations he had with Donald Trump in that crucial period, early January 2021. And he basically says uh, he's telling Trump it's not going to work. You can't use me to block your loss in the election. And Trump tells him things like, if you wimp out, you're just another somebody. He also writes, Trump said, you'll go down as a wimp. So that word wimp, wimp over and over. Uh, Trump 
is saying these things directly to Pence. There wouldn't have been other witnesses of them, uh, of that. But Pence is disclosing that in his book. That's the sort of thing that could get the Justice Department interested in in them. And the Justice Department has a lot of power in a criminal probe like this. They have used presidents, former presidents in the past to testify in investigations. They have really, they have no bounds around them to use people like Pence uh, as a witness. They might have to go through a process to get executive privilege uh, wiped away uh, in court. But really, they have been in a situation where even former President Ronald Reagan, after he left office, testified about things that were going on uh, inside his administration in the Iran-Contra affair. So we are in an area uh, that we just don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, but if Pence wants to talk, he probably will be able to. Allison? Hmm. And that's just one of the things that he said in his new book. We'll read some more of the passages as well. Caitlin, thank you very much. Let's bring in, we have CNN political commentator Errol Lewis with us tonight, also CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Okay, so Joey, legally, this is in a different category, right? The Department of Justice is in, in a different category than the January 6th House Committee. Does Mike Pence have to um, answer DOJ prosecutors? He could stall it. He could prevent it. I think there will come a time where he will answer questions. So let's talk about the distinction. When you have a House committee, of course, Congress has an oversight responsibility and they're investigating for that purpose. When we're talking about Department of Justice, we're talking about a department that is involved in criminality, not themselves, but in the investigation of it. And so when you're doing that, the only effective way not to testify is to assert some privilege or to otherwise give the indication, Allison, that you should shouldn't testify. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, the privilege will carry the day. I don't think he's looking to assert privilege. I don't think it necessarily applies here. Uh, and I think there will come a point in time that he does speak. Last point. Uh, you know, I think there's reasons to negotiate his testimony. Justice Department also always wants a motivated witness, a calm witness, a cooperative witness, a witness who is there not having any belief that they are, and he's not, the subject, the target of any investigation. I think it allows them to be more forthcoming that is the witness. I think it allows them to be more explanatory. And oh, by the way, there's a little wrinkle here. There's an election coming up upon which him and the president, mm -hmm. former president, uh, may be uh, at opposite sides. And so he may be very motivated to tell a story as to what happened, not to mention the book that you talked about, So Help Me God, in which he has many excerpts in that book with respect to those conversations between him, the president, and other parties who yeah. were there, so. Scott, I want to read a portion of that book because um, I know that at times we can think, oh, we've all heard everything that Mike Pence has to say about January 6th. Not exactly. In his book, there's some new stuff. So here's what he has writes about. He says, on January 5th, I got an urgent call that the president was asking to see me in the Oval Office. The president's lawyers, including Mr. Eastman, were now requesting that I simply reject the electors. I later learned that Mr. Eastman had conceded to my general counsel that rejecting electoral votes was a bad idea and any attempt to do so would be quickly overturned by a unanimous Supreme Court. This guy didn't even believe what he was telling the president. So it sounds like there is some new stuff, Scott, that he could offer. Yeah, I think he should talk to the Department of Justice in this criminal investigation. I think he had a pretty good argument on not going to Congress. I do think the separation of powers is something that ought to be taken seriously. But the main thrust of what we're going to get out of January the 6th strikes me as coming from uh, this Department of Justice investigation of who broke what laws. And so uh, I think Mike Pence should do it. Um, and uh, it sounds like he's got some 
Scott froze for a second. Errol, you can pick up where he left off. Is there any reason for Mike Pence not to do it? Um, well, he may not want to, but I think it's the, the handwriting is on the wall. Like, you can't take millions of dollars, what was probably millions of dollars for a book advance, and start dishing all of this breathless information about conversations in the Oval Office and then try to assert a privilege that it's confidential and he doesn't need to talk about it. So, you know, and just as you said, former President Reagan testified uh, when he was asked. Sitting President Bill Clinton. Let's go back to 1998. You know, the whole, the whole testimony all four hours and 16 minutes is online. You can watch it if you want to this day uh, where he was subpoenaed. He appeared before the special counsel appointed by the Department of Justice. And he said a lot of really embarrassing things about conversations and actions that went on between him and Monica Lewinsky and others in the White House. So um, Mike Pence, you know, I think Joey's right. You want him to be in a good mood. This is the first part of a negotiation. But in the end, he's going to have to testify. Let's talk about what's happening with Donald Trump. I know it can be hard to keep up with all of the various cases that um, Donald Trump is involved in. But here, let's just break it down to this week and what's happened this week. So here is what has happened, uh, Joey. The New York judge has scheduled a trial date for the Trump organization in that lawsuit that's been brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The Supreme Court did clear the way for a House committee to get Donald Trump's taxes after he had tried to block them for years. An appeals court has been skeptical of Donald Trump's arguments for, you know, what he was doing with all of those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And then Senator Lindsey Graham has testified before the Fulton County Grand Jury again about trying to overturn the election results in Georgia. That's just, I mean, we're not done with this week yet, Joey. <laughs> so that's what's yes. happened. So it's, does, it, does it feel to you like things are ramping up? I think so. I mean, look, this is our legal process at work, right? You're entitled, certainly, to push back, as the president does, very litigious, arguing and litigating as it relates to whatever, his taxes, you know, people who shouldn't talk. Going back to our last conversation, Mark Short, right, the the uh, chief of staff of the vice president, uh, in addition to his Meaning lawyer. Meaning that so, President Trump is angry that Mark Short is talking. Exactly, yeah. right. And so trying to block that testimony. But this is the way the process works. And I think ultimately, if you do things that are allegedly uh, not so good, if you have documents potentially you should not have had, there's an accountability factor. If you have organizations that are engaged in alleged impropriety, there's an accountability factor there. So I think some at some point in time, Allison, you've heard the expression that chickens come home to roost, right? You reap what you sow, all the things you can say. I think that the reckoning time is here. And when you run for president, that does not act as a bar to investigations and potential indictments and, of course, prosecution. So that's not going to help or could stall it, but it's not going to prevent the inevitable. Scott, how do you see it? Do you think things are ramping up? Well, I mean, he's got a lot going on. He's carrying a lot of bags, a lot of heavy bags. And I think if you're a Republican voter and you're trying to sort this out right now about whether we want to go through this a third time, uh, this is going to weigh on the minds of a lot of people. I saw some polling tonight before we went on the air, national polling that indicated uh, Donald Trump's favorability with Republicans had dropped. Ron DeSantis was on the rise. It appears to me that Republican voters are finally catching up to all this and deciding maybe they've had enough and maybe the bags are too heavy to carry and too risky to uh, roll the dice on him for another run from the White House. So uh, this stuff certainly doesn't help as you're kicking off your presidential campaign. Right. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much for that perspective. Stick around because it's not a matter of if there will be another mass shooting in this country, but when. That's what we've learned. It's been quite a 10 days in this country. And the wake of the deadly rampage at Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, that happened just last night. The question is, what are we going to do to stop this epidemic?
Eyewitnesses described the chaos inside a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia last night when a 31-year-old shooter, who was a team leader for the store's overnight shift, opened fire and killed six people and wounded four others in the latest mass shooting. How do we get out of this awful, deadly cycle in our country? Here with me is Errol Lewis, also CNN contributor Jennifer Massia, Catherine Schweit, former head of the FBI Active Shooter Program, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. Nice to have all of you. And we need solutions, obviously. We're way past the time of thoughts and prayers. What's interesting, Jennifer, is that Virginia has relatively strong gun laws. So I'll put up what they did in 2020. This was a Democratic-led state legislature, and they made progress for at least what Democrats consider progress. And so they, they passed universal background checks, which, as we know, are very popular with the public. There is a reporting requirement for a lost or stolen gun, limit of one handgun purchase per month for most people. That seems like it should be enough. Um, and then they have red flag laws. So explain how it is possible that someone who was clearly exhibiting some um, unhinged behavior was able to have these guns. Well, a background check in America only captures a snapshot in time. It doesn't really go deep. We see other countries are able to avoid this gun violence because they do a lot of vetting um, before the point of purchase. Um, Right now, uh, you can, um, guns are uh, extremely easy to access because our gun laws are built with holes in them. Our federal system does not cover private transactions which means that you can sell a gun to a friend at a yard sale. And most states are like this. So Virginia can have very strong gun laws. But if there are weak gun laws in neighboring states, it undermines all of that progress. Catherine, that is exactly the point that I have asked about so many times when we're reporting on these awful mass shootings. Why can't there be more questions asked at the point of purchase? Some sort of screening done to weed out people who, this guy, last night, the shooter, he was described by all his coworkers as gruff, mean, condescending, made threats. He was paranoid about the government. He talked about it all the time. He threatened what he would do. There would be retaliation if he was ever fired. I mean, is there no kind of screening or questions that could be asked by gun sellers? It's not a law that you have to sell a gun to anyone who asks. Why can't we do a better job of this? Well, I think you, you make you, part of it is you made the good point. You, they can refuse any sale. And I know that gun sellers do, FFLs do refuse sales. And I've talked to several who said he just didn't seem right. I, I don't think he knew what he was talking about. So I know that they can, but the limitations are just that. You're talking about people who their business is to sell guns and there is not any state or federal regulation like they have in a lot of other countries where you have to have witnesses Neighbors, they talk to the neighbors. They get you have to have people who vouch for you, who write letters. Some of the other countries are set up that way. We just don't have any standards like that in the United States. It's a little late, you know, 400 million guns in to start thinking about those kinds of standards for gun sales. I hear you, but we have to do something. I mean, obviously, we're in this cycle. We just have to. We have to do something because nothing isn't working. And and, and hold that thought for one one second, Catherine, because I want to um, ask Scott about this. Governor Yunkin of Virginia said, basically, which we hear a lot, now's not the time to talk about, you know, he didn't say now's not the time to talk about solutions, but there'll be a time for that, he basically said. Let me play for you what he said this morning. This is a horrendous event. It's a horrendous, senseless act of violence. And today we have to come around families and support them. 
there will be time uh, for us to, to uh, react and better understand. We will have, once the facts and circumstances are well understood, an opportunity to, to take uh, actions. Uh, today, we must stay focused on families. Um, Scott, unfortunately, he's wrong. We will not have any time to better understand or take actions because if uh, at our current rate, there'll be another mass shooting tomorrow. Uh, well, I, I think he's making a, a pretty valid point, which is we don't know all the circumstances that went into what happened to this particular guy. Uh, and I think before you start prescribing solutions to solve a particular matter, you know, however this guy came to get his gun and however he came to make the decision to shoot up the Walmart and his coworkers, you would want to know all the facts before you started, uh, you know, saying we have to do this or we have to do that. I mean, look what happened in Colorado, what we thought we knew about the shooter, what was alleged about him really changed over 48 hours. Like and so what, it strikes what, what me part, that you want to find a, uh, you want to find an answer to a question. You should get all the facts before you, uh, before you start prescribing. So, so I think, I think, well, I hold think on, what he said hold was, on, hold was on, hold on one second. Um, first of all, we've covered, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't even hazard a guess of how many I've covered of these. So they do sometimes fit a pattern and there does seem to be a deranged sort of unhinged, stable personality type that often does mass shootings. But what changed in Colorado? Well, what what was being said about the shooter's motivations in Colorado changed uh, over a couple of day period after his lawyer uh, said some things about his the way he self identifies. And so, so I, you I, believe just, so you believe you believe that that mass shooter, you believe his lawyer and him. Uh, I mean, Allison, I don't know. I mean, it's his lawyer. It's what it's what he's arguing that we didn't know anything and everybody was making arguments. And then mm-hmm. his lawyer goes to court and says something that totally changes the narrative. All I'm saying in the case mm-hmm. of this Walmart shooting is we don't know anything about this guy. We know people said he was weird and we know he went and shot up his coworkers. That's all I know. And so I, if I'm Governor Youngkin, yeah. how am I going to go out and start proposing solutions to things when I, I really don't have the facts of this? I, I, mean, I hear you, Wouldn't Scott. it be prudent to let it breathe? Uh, I don't know, Scott, because it wasn't just that he was weird. It was that he was paranoid and he was making threats and he was he was acting in this way that we often see unhinged, paranoid people behaving. And they all knew it. They'd seen it for years. It wasn't new. And so anyway, but but Errol, you yeah, let, me, let, me, Go, let me add please. some facts uh, to this. Um, this was a workplace killing. On average, more than one person dies uh, in a workplace killing every single day. And that includes, you know, I mean, the, the number is over 390 for the last year for which there's federal data. Um, You know, this year alone, by the way, and the only reason, look, the only reason we're covering this Walmart case is because it came so close to the other uh, uh, mass killing. But there have been workplace killings this year in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Maryland, in Tennessee, on and on and on. It happens all the time. And other than in local markets, it doesn't even get reported. That's how entrenched it is in our culture. Um, so, you know, you want to talk about who has responsibility? Yeah, there's the gun sellers. Yeah, there's the governor. Uh, there's also Walmart. There's the workplace. You know, uh, the, the, the employees who went to work had the right to expect uh, a safe workplace. Not somebody who's a supervisor who's muttering to himself, uh, exhibiting deranged behavior, and then took their lives. Uh, and and uh, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, part of the Labor Department, where's Marty Walsh? Where's the White House? What are they going to do about this? I've been writing about this for years. This has been going on for years. It's an absolute epidemic. Uh, there are uh, measures that can be taken, but not if we don't collect the data, talk about the data. The, the Secretary of Labor needs to uh, step forward, 
today, right now, perhaps before the end of the week, and say what he is prepared to do. There was some talk about violence being directed at uh, hospital workers. That's a particular workplace uh, where there was a lot of workplace violence uh, during and after the, p- the pandemic. But there are a lot of other places as well. And, and we, we as a country have to really sort of isolate this piece of the crisis and make sure that employers are living up to their responsibility and the federal government that oversees those employers is living up to its responsibility as well. I knew you guys would be the perfect panel to talk about this with because we are going to come back and talk about what each of you thinks is the one suggestion for a solution to break out of this, because this year could mark the second highest year of mass shootings on record in the U.S. So again, we're going to talk about solutions at the national level. We'll be right back. We're approaching the 10-year anniversary of the murder of 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And the mass shooting epidemic has only accelerated since then. Joining us now is Nicole Hockley. Her son Dylan was killed at Sandy Hook, and since then she has tackled gun violence virtually every day. She is now the managing director of Sandy Hook Promise. Nicole, I'm so glad that you can join us tonight. I always appreciate talking to you, even though it's often in these horrible circumstances. I know you were listening to our conversation about what happened at that Walmart last night. What what aren't we getting? What are we missing? Uh, Honestly, I was listening and it was a very uh, infuriating conversation to listen to um, because I'm I'm seeing a lot of deflection rather than dealing with the problem at hand. We have we have an epidemic and it's not just about workplace violence. It's about church violence. It's about nightclub violence. It's about school violence. It's everywhere. We have over 600 mass shootings alone this year. That's over two a day. There isn't time to wait for people to get over it. There isn't time for to, to wait to just Let's worry about the families first and we'll think about solutions later because tomorrow it's someone else's family. And if we're not taking action today, then we're not doing anything to prevent the violence tomorrow. We're just waiting for it to happen to us next. And that's not a place any of us want to be in. So I'm, I'm kind of I'm a little bit angry tonight, um, which I'm not normally. And this is really I'm just very dissatisfied with the lack of accountability and and desire to take strong actions to deal with a problem in a way that. We can protect constitutional rights and save lives. The the solutions are in front of us. We just have to stop fighting and work on getting them passed. Nicole, you are entitled to your frustration and anger. Um, I think that all of us feel it, but you just articulate it better. Um, I mean, I think that you, your tweet this morning that you you sent out at 7 a.m., I think spoke for all of us. You said, again, waking up to news of another mass shooting this week, but... Still, there are people who won't acknowledge the problem or accept the solutions. Instead, cue thoughts and prayers. How about some effing action instead? So what is the solution? What is the action, Nicole, that you'd like to see people take? You know, uh, I hate to say this pun, but there's no silver bullet. There's no one solution that's going to solve this. There are legislative solutions, such as strengthening the implementation of extremist protection orders. There's federal funding available right now for states to apply for to either implement or strengthen their implementations. Awareness and education are critical for these laws to work well. And that could have helped in Virginia and it could have helped in Colorado. 
other laws like background checks, limits on high capacity magazines and semi-automatic weapons. These are important. They're not restricting someone, but they're keeping people safe. And then there's a lot of community work that we can do, strengthening the bonds within communities, learning the signs, recognizing the signs of someone who is in crisis or could be at risk of hurting themselves or someone else and taking action to get that person help. Not thinking it's someone else's problem, someone else will take care of it, but actually being that upstander and leaning in. That's something kids can do. That's something adults can do. It's something we can all do that's going to help create safer futures. That's such a great point, Nicole, because so often after these things, there is a pattern. I mean, you, you heard me arguing a little bit with Scott there, and, and Scott will be back uh, in a moment with us. But there's a pattern. After we've covered this, you know, probably, I mean, at least 50 times, you see that there actually are signs. And we have to yes. be able to be proactive instead of reactive. I know that you were involved in the bipartisan federal um gun safety law that was passed. And so here, just to remind people, are some of the things it does. It enhances review processes for buyers under 21. It incentivizes, as you say, state red flag laws, $750 million to help states implement and run crisis intervention programs. It increases the funding for mental health programs and school security. That's something that Governor Youngkin talked about just today. It closes the boyfriend loophole. It requires more gun sellers to register as federally licensed firearm dealers. I know it didn't go as far as you wanted it to. But can it cut down on mass shootings? It can. If, if these are, if the, if the federal money is used, if the, the laws are strengthened, if schools are using these violence prevention programs, there's so much funding available. There's no excuse not to do it other than our own will or political will that might get in the way of us taking action. So it's, it's there in front of us for taking and creating something good from. You just have to lean in and do it. It's going to take time, yes, and that is incredibly frustrating with the amount of violence we have right now. But if we don't take those steps now, all we're doing is allowing the violence to continue until we suddenly decide that we're finally ready because it's happened to us. Nicole, you're wonderful. I always appreciate your voice and talking to you. Thanks so much for taking time for us tonight. Thank you. I want to bring back Errol Lewis, Jennifer uh, Macia, Catherine Schweit, and Scott Jennings. Errol, you were listening there. I know very closely. What's the solution? What's the one thing that we should do, that we can do, that would stop this? I'll go back to what I mentioned before. I think you have to get the private sector involved. They're, they're not just the, the site of, of killings, and it's all up to the rest of us to sort of figure out who should be hired and allowed to supervise at Walmart. It is the responsibility of Walmart. They've got to do better. If they don't have the tools to screen employees, they should figure out how to get the tools to screen employees. They can figure out how to get inside our heads and tell us how to buy stuff. Well, you know, there are, there are data scientists out there who can help them sort of figure out how to do this. They can maybe create so, some model legislation for us. I think overall, uh, by the way, in addition to bringing in the, the, uh, the, the private sector, we're going to have a general election in a couple of years at which, you know, upwards of 150 million people are going to cast a vote. Um, the, the political will is expressed at the ballot box. Now is the time, not later, uh, to try and, and do whatever is necessary, whatever is possible, to reduce the, some of the best possible uh, actions to a couple of propositions and then make sure that it is on the ballot uh, at every office from uh, the, the county commission all the way up to the president of the United States. And then we can really sort of uh, put it to a vote and see if we can actually force some action on this. Scott, your solution. I'll give you two. I think we ought to put violent criminals in jail and keep them there. And I think we ought to strengthen nuclear families in this country. I think one of the strands that goes through a lot of these shooters is 
absolute lack of a solid uh, upbringing. They have broken homes. They've been taught terrible lessons uh, in their lives, and they end up in violent outcomes. And so those are my two. Okay, Catherine, you have written a book saying that there is an end, there's a way to end mass shootings. What is your solution? Stop dumping all gun violence into one bucket and thinking there's one solution. The workplace violence is one situation. Mass killings that occur where somebody runs out at the last minute and buys a gun is another problem. Strengthen the funding and make sure that we get a strong ATF so they look for straw buyers. Develop those systems so that we don't have to chase after the minute number of people who are committing the kind of terror that we're seeing so that people who have guns and are confident that they can be responsible gun owners don't feel like somebody's running after them to take their guns away. And then my second thing would be make sure that be, you get mad. You, everybody should be mad about this, as mad as Nicole is, as mad as I am, that you should be so mad that you should be going you know, through your kid's drawers and your husband's trunk in his car. There's no democracy in a, in a household. The people who make the leaking, who do the leaking, who make their statements, they make them and they do leak 95% of the time, say actual words to people saying they're going to do things just like we were just talking about. But people don't respond and think they're serious about it. Like, get mad. Be serious about it. That's a great suggestion. Go, uh, go ahead, Jennifer. Well, you know, hom- 80% of homicides are perpetrated with guns. At the end of the day, Uh, Guns are the common denominator. There would be no gun violence without guns. We see because we see that other countries don't have this type of violence. And the way that you cut down this violence, the data shows, is by properly vetting gun owners, requiring training. It's a level of scrutiny that Americans are not used to. And it's kind of shocking, but we see that other countries have successfully done it because they don't have this every week. You know, in between um, Colorado Springs... And uh, Chesapeake, there were 418 people shot in America, 160 of them fatally. That's everyday gun violence. That's a remarkable number. And so you're talking about in basically the last 10 days, virtually two weeks. Um, Actually, no, that was the last three days. Oh, in just the last three days. Yes, between Colorado Springs and Chesapeake, there were 418 people shot in America, not mass shootings. That's interpersonal violence. When guns are around and conflict happens, people reach for them. And vetting gun owners before the point of purchase data shows does cut down guns. Now, only seven states have gun owner licensing programs. That is something that we're going to see big state divides. You know, you're going to have California, New York with super strong gun laws and lower gun deaths. But then you have 25 other states that will not require permits to carry a gun in public or training. I mean, and of course, borders are porous. So if even if you have a state with strong gun laws or that requires this kind of background checking for licensing, If you're next to a state that doesn't, it's different. Um, Friends, thank you all very much. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you all for thinking of solutions. It's the only thing left to do after we report on something like this so frequently. I really appreciate your perspectives. Okay, on a lighter note, the U.S. men's national team set to take the World Cup stage against England on Friday. And it could be a match just as dramatic as the one against Wales. The family of one of the team's stars, Kellen Acosta, is going to join me with what they're thinking next.
Okay, millions of Americans will be crisscrossing the country for Thanksgiving. And of course, the weather could be a challenge and put a damper on some of your festivities. So we've got your holiday forecast. Okay, Derek, what are we looking at? (laughs) Well, we've got lots to be thankful for, right? And uh, it's going to be quite an interesting weather forecast across the U.S., especially Considering that over 55 million Americans are on the move, if you're talking about Atlanta Jackson International Airport, uh, the Hartsfield Jackson International Airport, they're expecting two and a half million people to move through the airport just through the course of this weekend. We got lots to be thankful, uh, though, and that includes a very decent forecast along the I-95 corridor. With the exception of just high volume delays, I think that uh, we're setting up pretty nicely today. But things are going to get interesting across the nation's midsection as we go forward in time, and I'll talk about that in just one moment because we've got some very, very uh, messy weather that's going to start developing. Hey, you know what? A lot of people tuning in to the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade. Well, you can't beat this weather forecast if you're in New York City where temperatures will be in the 40s and the calm winds. That's the good news for the people holding the balloons. So this uh, parade will go uh, on without any hindrance from the weather, at least. You can see high pressure and control of the weather. Now, this is the storm system that's going to bring us wet weather going forward into the rest of the weekend. And this cause, uh, could cause some travel delays, especially as you head home uh, by Saturday and Sunday from visiting family and friends. We have winter weather advisories and winter storm watches in place for the Texas Panhandle. Uh, You can see some of the snow that's already forming across the northern Rockies, but this is the wet weather that could cause some delays. Dallas into Houston. We're getting a lot of that Gulf of Mexico moisture here going forward. Now just check out this forecast radar. Time this out for you. Thursday being Thanksgiving Day, you can see the wet weather starting to develop, but Friday things are going to get messy across the deep south and southeast. We're anticipating uh, one to two inches of rain just south of Atlanta as the system moves through. And uh, you can just see this forecast accumulation going forward, Ellison. Uh, things are looking a bit on the wet side. There's a snowfall for New Mexico and the Texas Panhandle. Uh, really kind of uh, a wet-looking forecast for this area, again, for the second half of the weekend. But in terms of today, getting out the door, at least I should say Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, the forecast looking pretty decent. But Sunday, that's a whole other story. We're anticipating travel delays for D.C., as well as New York City. You can see another storm system developing across the Pacific Northwest. So, Derek, basically, is your advice that everybody should travel tonight or tomorrow for Thanksgiving and then get out of there before Sunday? Great question, and yes, you hit the uh, perfectly. That's exactly what I would advise. Get out the door today, uh, if you can still, or uh, perhaps early in the morning on Thursday, because the weather will be most tranquil on Thursday. But as you wind off the weekend, you need to get home quicker than what you'd anticipated, because Sunday, uh, that's when things will get very interesting along the East Coast. That's when I anticipate the travel delays as people head home from Grandma and Grandpa's house, head home from family and friends. Uh, They will be hitting some of these major airports along the eastern seaboard, and they could see moderate travel delays that uh, could slow you down getting home. Okay, we will heed your advice. Uh, Derek Landam, thank you very much. Thanks, Allison. Okay, we'll be right back. Okay, just as you're sitting down to devour some turkey leftovers, the U.S. men's national soccer team will be playing England in a rematch that may be the biggest thing since the Revolutionary War. And we all know who won that one. So tonight I have with me the family of the U.S. men's national team's midfielder, Kellen Acosta. With us now are Ken and Kanika Perry Acosta. And there's a long delay, so everybody be patient for this conversation because we hope technology will help us. Great to see you guys. 
tonight. And your son made this incredible play in the game. People call it the World Cup saving foul. Basically, he, he you know, fouled yeah, his, his um, uh, well, his friend, but also the competitor. And everybody says that he saved the game. So tell us what that moment was like. That was actually pretty amazing. I was uh, I was wondering if he was going to go ahead and take the foul. Um, we had to have it. He had he knew he had to take it. Um, and you know they he does play with the the other player. So you know you know you don't want to hurt anybody, but we needed it to to save us. So Kellen did what he needed to do, and he took him out. It was a play for the USA. It was much needed, or it could have been a goal. So it was a great play. And so I mean, back domestically, he plays with Gareth Bale. But I guess that all bets are off, you know, when you're in the World Cup. Oh, most definitely. And so what has it been like for, for you guys? Uh, sorry to be sorry that the delay is making me interrupt you guys. What's it been like to be watching this? And what's the mood, by the way, in Qatar? Because we've heard about the controversies. What's the atmosphere there? Well, it's been actually it's been great here. It's a beautiful city. Um, we've done a lot of mostly family oriented things um, with the U.S. team, uh, so yeah, it's, it's been fun. Like they make sure that everything's like, taken care of, everything's like uh, handled. You know, they tell us where to be, so it's perfect. And we have all these activities. It's a lot going on here, and it's been a great, great experience. And the fan base is great too. And the, the crowd got into it before the game, the after the game, a lot of chanting before and after the game. So. It's been great so far. That's wonderful to hear. Well, it's been wonderful to watch and uh, great to cheer your son on. And he saved the World Cup, basically, uh, for the U.S. So um, so congratulate him and we'll be watching on Friday. Thanks so much, guys, for joining us tonight. All right, thank, thank you. you so okay, so the holiday season is here, of course. And with it comes the traditions that make it special, including all those holiday movies and TV shows that we love to watch. So this year, CNN is bringing us a unique look at our favorites. The new CNN original series special event, Tis the Season, The Holidays on Screen, unwraps the most memorable and festive moments of holiday classics, new and old, and explores why these stories continue to delight audiences. So here's a preview. Christmas movies and television specials are always about someone who has lost their faith in humankind, regaining it. Christmas Story is one of the best movies about nostalgia, family, and Christmas. I watch it every year at least twice. It's the script of my life. It's hard to beat Home Alone. Just the fun and the hijinks. It is on the Mount Rushmore of holiday movies. I lost myself in Miracle on 34th Street. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was capturing how the holidays make us all insane. There is that consistent Christmas element in Elf of change, of realization. Watch a good Christmas show, and it doesn't matter when it was made. These ideas don't get old. Unwrap the stories behind everything we love to watch at Christmas. A two-hour special event. Tis the season. The holidays on screen. Sunday at 8 on CNN. It's been an awful 10 days in the U.S. for mass shootings. I know it's hard to think about this every day and every night, but we do have a list to show you that really drives home what we're talking about. In less than a week, 
There have been eight mass shootings in America. Innocent people killed at every one, lives ruined, family members in mourning, virtually forever. More than 600 mass shootings in the United States so far just this year. This is part of an epidemic that America cannot seem to solve. But we are talking about solutions tonight, but first let's talk about the crimes and the latest. We want to go to CNN's Diane Gallagher. She's live for us in Chesapeake, Virginia. We also have CNN's Nick Watt, who is in Colorado Springs for us. So Diane, tell us what you've learned about the six people who were killed last night. Yeah, that's right, Allison. And look, this was just a little more than 24 hours ago at that Walmart that you see behind me, that those six lives were stolen by a gunman at their workplace. The victims range in age from 16 to 70 years old. And according to Walmart, they all worked for the company. Lorenzo Gamble, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, Randall Blevins, Tanika Johnson, and a 16-year-old male who the city says they are not releasing his name or his photo because he is a minor. And look, that's not counting the wounded who went to the hospital and the emotional damages, the trauma for the survivors of this. We've spoken to many of them over the past 24 hours. What they saw, what the the images they can't get out of their heads, uh, like what this young woman experienced on just her fifth day working at this Walmart. Take a listen. I slid out under the from out underneath of the table and I'm shaking and I probably looked like a chihuahua at that point and he just had the gun up to my forehead and and this is really hard. He told me to go home. And he took the gun away from my forehead and he was aiming it at the ceiling and he said, Jesse, go home. It's just awful. It's just awful to hear about that. And and tell us what we do know about this shooter, because what I've read, it sounds like he was really uh, exhibiting lots of signs that were worrisome to his coworkers. So, Allison, I think in retrospect, perhaps, but when I talk to the people here about 31-year-old Andre Bing, who was, according to Walmart, the overnight uh, team lead, kind of a supervisor position. But look, when I talked to the employees, they kind of referred to him like a manager here. They saw him. He'd worked for Walmart since 2010. So he was a longtime employee. Look, they talked about him being difficult to work with. Some of them described him as having odd or even threatening interactions. They said that uh, he seemed to relish in the position that he had, that power that he had uh, over them. It was something that he seemed to enjoy kind of throwing around. They called him sometimes mean or condescending. But every person with whom I spoke with said that in no way, shape or form did they ever think that he was the type of person who would come in and do this? Did they ever think that it was going to result in a mass shooting? Uh, They described him as paranoid, afraid that the government was watching or controlling him. They didn't like to be recorded by cell phones. There's some cell phone footage uh, that a former uh, co-worker of his had from back in 2016. And she notes that when he realizes that he's being recording, he tries to like move out of of the scene there. And so uh, they describe him as strange, uh, difficult to work with, uh, a loner even. But Allison, every person, even those who watch this happen, say that they are absolutely shell-shocked 
that he came in there and, and did what uh, police say that he did with a handgun uh, and several armed, uh, several magazines they say that he was armed with. They are still trying to determine a motive here. And look, I can tell you that people here in Chesapeake are still trying to gather their thoughts and figure out what they're going to do. This, of course, is Thanksgiving Eve. It's usually a very busy day at places like Walmart. It's been closed. These employees don't know what to do. These survivors don't know what to do. And these families are trying to figure out how to go on with their lives now. Yeah, of course, understood. Because even when somebody acts that strangely, it is unimaginable um, what he yep. did. So, so Nick, uh, to you, the suspect in the Colorado Springs Club Q shooting appeared in court for the first time today. So tell us about that. Yeah, you know, Alison, before I talk about that person, I just want to talk about a little bit of resilience and positivity here. Club Q, where this shooting took place, they always hold a Thanksgiving lunch because that club was a real community hub in this small city for the small LGBTQ community. They are going to have Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow, but in a different location, of course, because their club is a crime scene. And the alleged shooter is in that jail behind me for this Thanksgiving and possibly many more. As you mentioned, first appearance in court today, said very little, sat the whole time, slumped, uh, orange jumpsuit, bruises all over uh, forehead and face. Because remember, this shooter was taken down during the rampage and a young naval officer and a trans woman kicked this suspect repeatedly in the head to stop him creating, causing any more havoc. So. I think we've got a little bit of video that we can show you of this slurring short appearance. Take a look. Could the defendant please state his name? Anderson Aldrich, did you watch the video concerning your constitutional rights in this case? Yes. Do you have any questions about those rights? And that was it from the suspect, the defendant. The lawyers then had a conversation with the judge about the next appearance scheduled right now for December 6th, so nearly two weeks away. And that's when we expect to get the official charges. Right now, there are charges on the arrest warrant, five counts of first-degree murder and five bias-related crimes. Now, another little note here, which I know, Alison, you've been talking about. The lawyers for this defendant say that the defendant identifies as non-binary. You'll notice the judge did not use they, them pronouns in that hearing. And, you know, we also spoke today with a neighbor of the suspect, a good friend of the suspect. They bonded over video games, played for hours together. And this young man, um, Xavier Krauss, told me that he had never once heard the suspect ever mention anything about being non-binary in the past. Alison? Yes, I mean, I think that uh, you're asking all the right questions, Nick, and I appreciate that because some people have expressed skepticism as to whether or not it's a legal ploy, but obviously we yeah. will find out more about that. Diane, Nick, thank you both. I want to bring in now Democratic Virginia State Senator and President Pro Tempore, uh, Louise Lucas. Um, Senator, thank you so much for being here. We're so sorry about what's happening in Virginia and in your district and what everybody there has had to um, endure. What's the answer? What's the answer to stopping things like what happened at Walmart? Well, you know, I've said several times over the last 24 hours, the only thing that's going to stop gun violence is legislators 
coming up with common sense gun violent prevention programs that's going to bring all of this to a stop. But the first thing that I thought needed to happen is for us to develop a critical mass of people around this issue so that they can start impressing upon the legislators the need to do this because people are just so tired of these mass shootings. As a matter of fact, I took up, took it upon myself to go out to three different um, shopping malls today just to kind of get a sense of what people were feeling and what they were thinking. Well, first they were in shock because they just, first of all, couldn't believe that it had hit this close to home. And then the next thing is now today people are feeling grief and afraid and wondering who's the next mass shooter. Is it someone near them? Is it someone they know? And so now people are just afraid to even be out in public places because they never know where the next mass shooting is going to occur. But I say again and again and again, the only thing that's going to bring us to a point that we're going to bring an end to this mass shooting is to do like other countries are doing and get these guns out of the hands of people who do not need to have them. And State Senator, do you think that you have willing um, partners in Virginia to do this? And I'm asking because when we heard from the governor today, he was saying um, that he'd like to, uh, I think, invest more resources in mental health. I'm sure that's welcome in Virginia. I'm sure it'd be welcome in every state. There aren't enough beds and enough staff. And then the lieutenant, exactly. the, the lieutenant governor also, um, I believe that she campaigned um, holding a weapon of war. And she had, had a tweet saying, beautiful day, range day. Marines know how to use guns, and I won't ever support a red flag law. Second Amendment says, shall not be infringed, hashtag Semper Fi. Um, so do you think that you have partners? I think that is absolutely ludicrous because people are, you, you have all these people out there who are, are imitating folks like the governor, lieutenant governor. And it sends a really, really bad message because people are being... I think motivated by hate speech and uh, and all of the proliferation of guns. But if we're not going to talk about this now after all these mass shootings, and we've had several here in Virginia, if we're not going to talk about it now, then when? People are dying. Families are, are suffering. Our community is traumatized. We have got to bring an end to gun violence. And the only way to do that is with common sense gun legislation. And I'm thinking now that the critical mass that we've been looking for is developing just like around George Floyd when people took to the streets in March. I think people are at the point where they're going to march somewhere to make sure that legislators understand that they're sick and tired of this and they're not going to put up with it anymore. And I think a lot of this is going to be felt at the polls coming up at the, uh, uh, subsequent elections because people understand now that we have got to elect people who care about whether or not our constituents live or die. Yeah. So we've uh, got to come up. Yeah. Um, Senator uh, Luis Lucas, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you taking the time right before Thanksgiving to talk with us about this. Thank you. My pleasure. Here with us now, we have Molly Jean Bast, special correspondent for Vanity Fair and CNN presidential historian Tim Naftali. CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein is here, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings is back with us. Molly, your thoughts? You have, this is a uniquely American problem because we are a country that refuses to regulate guns. And so we have these shootings and we have them 
everywhere. We have them in schools. We have them in restaurants. We have them in malls. We have them in bars. I mean, and it's happening because we refuse to regulate guns. And I think that it's so craven of Republicans to say this is a mental health problem. Sure, it's a mental health problem. It's not an either or. We are happy for you to fund mental health. That's great. And then also have sensible gun laws. Like, we don't have to live like this. And, and you know, just like we saw in these midterms, most Americans don't want to live like this. You know what's really affecting my mental health poorly? Mass shootings. Mm-hmm. That's part of why we have a bad mental health problem. Um, Ron, uh, you know, you're, you're a student, obviously, of trends in America and history. And how are we at this point? This is, I think, a crisis of majority rule. I think there is no way that we will ever address the gun problem without addressing the the ways in which the filibuster combined with the two senator per state rule uh, basically uh, undermines majority rule. Allison, if you look at the 20 states that have the most, the highest gun ownership per capita, uh, they send 32 Republican senators uh, to, to Washington out of those 20 states. If you look at the 20 states that have the smallest uh, gun ownership per capita, they send 32 Democratic senators, so equal in the 20 and 20. The difference is the 20 states with the fewest, the smallest gun ownership per capita have about 125 million more people than the 20 states with the most gun ownership. And so what that what basically we are seeing on guns is that it is perhaps the premier example of how the rules empower a small number of sparsely populated predominantly white rural states to have an outsized influence on national policy. There is majority support in the country about as high as you can get in a democracy for most of the steps that people want to take. Tighter red flag laws, universal background checks, ban on assault weapons, uh, ban on high capacity magazines. Even a majority of Republicans who don't own guns say they support those ideas, but they simply cannot advance through the Senate so long as Republicans in the Senate believe they cannot cross the, 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 the Repu- really one constituency, the Republicans who own guns. Scott, um, because you um, are, you know, our voice of what Republicans are thinking. So the, the latest Pew polls that we have in terms of background checks, I mean, Ron's right. The vast majority of Americans support strengthening background checks. And in terms of banning high capacity magazines, again, majority of Americans support banning high capacity magazines. So why is this so stuck in Congress? Well, because the constituents of the people who, uh, uh, you know, represent them uh, don't want it. I mean, you but do have do. high levels I mean, of this support is a, of it. A, 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 like majority of Americans do want it. A majority of Americans, but these people represent specific states and districts and constituencies. And so, you know, that's ultimately, you know, one thing that, that representative government gives you is they don't go there to represent the country at large. They go there to represent the people who elect them. So that's number one. Number two, I would remind you all that we did just pass a pretty broad uh, gun violence uh, response package uh, just this last year in a bipartisan way. It passed the House and the Senate, and everybody was pretty happy about it at the time. I mean, a lot of the things that are being discussed right now, I'm looking at this Walmart situation that we've been discussing tonight, and I'm trying to figure out, would it have stopped this particular case? And and I, I keep coming back to the gun debate is one thing. The policy debate is one thing. But no one seems to want to talk about one of the threads that runs through all these shootings. And that's what's going on in these people's lives, this commonality of broken homes, violent homes, drug addiction, you know, and it goes on and on and on. It has nothing to do with guns and everything to do with, you know, how these people turn out uh, in the course of their lives. And so I think as we're yeah. having the gun debate, 
I think we got to have that debate as well because I think they I think they go together. I hear you. I wouldn't say it has nothing to do with guns because you can when a deranged person doesn't have a gun, they don't go on a mass shooting. So I wouldn't say it has nothing to do with guns, but I hear you, Scott, and I'm not disagreeing that obviously there's a crisis in people's homes and there's a mental health crisis and all of that stuff. But the nexus is when they get a gun. That's when the violence happens. But hold that thought because, Tim, as our historian, give us your thoughts on this. Well, something happened in the 1990s, after the 1990s, that has made the argument that Scott made is a totally fair argument. He's absolutely right. Those uh, members of Congress are representing what their constituents seem to want. But in the 1990s, American police officers wanted gun control. American police officers made the argument, we are outgunned by the gangs. And they still say that, by the way. Well, but they don't. Their, the Fraternal Order of Police don't, doesn't say it, and, and police unions don't say it. And this is the challenge, I think, Scott. I'm sorry to just talk to you, but I'm going to say it to you. The challenge is we don't have this conversation. We don't talk about this nexus. Molly said it's not an either-or. Absolutely not. But the problem is that the response, I have to say, from the Republican side is we don't want to talk about this. We only want to talk about this as mental health, nothing else. When Congress controlled, well, sorry, when the Republicans controlled Congress, they wouldn't even allow a study of gun violence in this country. They wouldn't spend the money to get data. 690 mass shootings last year. Mm-hmm. There is no country on earth that has that. Why should we be exceptional in the amount of gun violence we have? This year, we have 609 so far. We may actually get more than last year. Yeah. This is an epidemic. And let me let Scott respond. So, Scott, no. why don't Republicans, why are Republicans uncomfortable talking about the gun aspect of this epidemic? Well, Republicans generally, and, and this is a, a long-held uh, principle of the Republican Party, is that we're defenders of the Second Amendment. We believe in the, you know, the constitutional rights that, you know, flow from but it's not absolute. Uh, the, the founding document of this country. And so that that is... That is generally, uh, you know, one of the longest held principles of this party. And that's where a lot of legislators uh, think that they have a responsibility to defend. And by the way, their constituents expect them to defend it. That doesn't mean you couldn't make policy changes or invest in things. In fact, we just did. Republicans voted for for some of these things yes. that just happened. I know. Uh, I mean, but, and you but heard there Nicole is a fundamental Humphrey. constitutional issue that you're, you're bumping up against. You can't just flippantly say, yeah, well, let's just. Do this, that, and the other. Of course, I mean, you do bump I, I, up against understood, the but it's not absolute. And guys, I mean, obviously, look, we we obviously need an hour uh, special to talk about this because there's so much to say, and we're um, we're up against a break right here. But thank you all very much for your perspectives. We'll be back to talk to some of you, but first, we do want to move on to this because there's no suspects, there's no murder weapon. A week and a half after four college students were found brutally stabbed to death in Idaho. So why aren't police closer to solving this, or are they? Still no suspects in the shocking stabbing deaths of four college students in Idaho. Here's the Moscow, Idaho police captain today. No suspects have been named or arrested, and we continue looking for what we believe to be a fixed blade knife used in the murders. I want to bring in now Alinda Burroughs. She's the host of Investigation Discovery's Crime Scene Confidential, which is now available to stream on Discovery Plus, and CNN is a division of Warner Brothers Discovery. Alina, thanks so much for being here. So can we talk about the DNA evidence here? Because today the police chief and the uh, investigators went through the list, the long list of um, 
evidence that they've gathered. They've taken, you know, hundreds of photos. They have um, something like uh, 103 pieces of individual evidence. And it's hard to imagine that in a crime scene this bloody and this intense that the killer wouldn't have left behind a lot of his own DNA. So how long will it take for them to to maybe make a match, a DNA match, or for them to get to the bottom of that? It depends. So DNA can take up to a few weeks to get back. And in a case of this high profile, they might be able to expedite that. Um, Certainly the hope in a case like this is in a case this intently aggressive. uh, The hope is that our suspect could have injured themselves in the process. And that is not uncommon in a case like this. Uh, especially with multiple victims in a stabbing, uh, we can we have a, a chance to see that our, our suspect could have ob- obtained some injuries, and that would not be uncommon in the palm or in the interior finger areas uh, that we would see some cuts. Yeah. So the hope is that those injuries could help to either identify a potential suspect. Uh, or that that suspect could have left DNA on the scene, as you suggest. You were a crime scene investigator for 12 years. When you get to a scene like this, with this many victims and this much blood, where do you even begin? And by the way, one more detail here is that the two surviving roommates first called their friends over to the house rather than police, I imagine, for moral support or to help them. So what has that done? What does that do to the crime scene? It's overwhelming, but because they live in the house, uh, their DNA, their fingerprints can be expected to be there. So it it doesn't damage the house. It doesn't damage the crime scene really in any way. Uh, What we're looking for and the basis of crime scene investigation is that we try to link victim, suspect, and crime scene. And any evidence that can do that is what investigators are busy looking for right now. Uh, and that's what the, the task at hand is. And that's going to take them some time to do. Well, let's all just hope that there is some DNA that can be found in that horrible scene and that they're able to do a match and find out who this person is. Uh, Alina, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being with us tonight. Absolutely. So the Senate runoff in Georgia is less than two weeks away, and we have new investigative reporting on the GOP candidate Herschel Walker right after this. In less than two weeks, we will see the rematch in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Early voting starts this Saturday after the Georgia Supreme Court today rejected an emergency request from Republicans trying to block it. Back with me, we have Molly Jong-Fast, Tim Naftali, Ron Brownstein, and Scott Jennings. Um, Ron, do you think that early voting will make a difference in Georgia, and will we see a different result in Georgia than this neck-and-neck virtual tie that we had? Yeah, when when you have a race that's this close, I mean, everything makes a difference. Alice, I think the biggest issue in Georgia is even in the first round, there were clearly many Republicans who were hesitant about Herschel Walker's capacity, his morality, his his ability to handle the job, but were willing to vote for him because they wanted a Republican-controlled Senate. Uh, That is no longer a possibility. And the question is whether those Republicans who kind of held their nose and voted for him, much less those Republicans who came out primarily to support Brian Kemp, are they going to feel motivated to come out a second time 
for a candidate about whom they have many doubts when control of the Senate is no longer really at stake. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, it's going to be a close race. I mean, Herschel's obviously fighting uphill. He got fewer votes uh, in the first election. And uh, on this Saturday voting thing, I, I don't understand. I mean, instead of fighting against the Saturday voting, why don't you just focus all your efforts on getting people to vote when the polls are open? That'd be my advice to the Republicans down there. I don't I don't quite understand. Republicans are allowed to vote on Saturday, too. So that would be where I put my energy. Yeah. And it's easier to vote on a day you don't have to work, by the way. I've noticed. Yeah. Um, so there's also this new K-File reporting. So CNN's investigative team has new reporting, Molly, that basically um, Herschel Walker has been getting a tax break in Texas last year and this year for what he calls his primary residence, which is in Dallas, Texas, which is not in Georgia. Dallas, Texas is not in Georgia, I've learned. <laughs> and um, I'm just wondering if we think that that will affect the carpet, if a carpetbagger <laughs> claim will affect him because I think that people do think that that affected Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Well, this is, to quote Mitch McConnell, a candidate quality problem, right? These are these not vetted candidates, just like, uh, you know, Oz was the same way. And I mean, I think that he's not from there, right? Neither was Oz. Oz was from New Jersey. And people want to be represented by people who are from where they're from. So I do think that's a problem. I mean, look, he's also been plagued with scandals and he's had a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of stuff that has come out through this campaign. But he's ultimately, I have to wonder if Republicans really want him in the Senate. I mean, he'll be there for six years if he went. Well, they certainly want, it. I think that they want and they would prefer to have a split Senate than to have a one person, a, a one uh, yeah, person lead for Democrats. Absolutely. I mean, it'll make it much easier for them to take over the Senate in two years. Uh, and the, by the way, the Democrats have a tough, have a tough slate. They're going to have to fight a lot to retain control of the Senate two years from now. So, of course, Republicans would like to win the seat. The problem for the Republicans is what Molly said, which is that Mitch McConnell predicted that a number of the Republicans that Donald Trump insisted on supporting were not going to make it. And, and, you know, you, Herschel Walker has either violated the law of Georgia or the law of Texas, but he's actually been a resident of two places simultaneously. And so he's got a problem. It's not just optics. He's actually got a, he's got a legal problem. Um, I think the big question for me is Brian Kemp. That's what I'm watching. Does Brian Kemp throw his machine behind Herschel Walker or not? Herschel Walker doesn't have a machine. Reverend Warnock has a machine. And the question is turnout. I don't know. Does Brian Kemp want to help Donald Trump's guy get elected? Well, he is, not? right? Isn't he? Isn't Scott? Isn't yeah, Brian Kemp uh, uh, campaigning yeah. with him? Yeah. Yeah. Doing that. Yeah, two weeks well. ago, it was, re- yeah, two, two weeks ago, it was reported that uh, Brian Kemp was, was loaning his uh, full turnout operation, uh-huh. his people, all of his uh, technical know-how to the Republicans to try to turnout uh, voters for the runoff regarding Walker, by the way, on this on this uh, residency issue. I mean, everybody knew he lived in Texas. This is talked about before. And, you know, to, to equate him to Dr. Oz, I mean, Dr. Oz was not a favorite son of Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker yeah. is a favorite son of Georgia. And everybody knew he had lived out of state and had come back to run for the Senate. This is a to me is a non-issue. The bigger issue is what Ron raised earlier. Can you get Republicans back out one more time? And can Brian Kemp convince a few more Republicans who voted for him 
uh, to pull the lever this time. The reason the vote matters, by the way, is because of the filibuster. It doesn't mean control the Senate, but if you get Democrats closer to changing the filibuster rules, that might matter to a lot of Republican voters. Okay, got it. Ron, last word quickly. Real quick. I mean, uh, five states made Joe Biden president by switching from Trump in 16 to Biden in 20. If Walker loses, we will have Trump back nominees who lost in all five of them this year for governor or senator, which is about as clear a state, even with three quarters of the voters saying the economy was in bad shape, which is about as clear a statement as the Republican Party can get on Trump's ability to win back those places in two years. Okay, guys, stick around because we have some election news to report. Yes, the midterms are still going on. Okay, CNN now projects that Senator Lisa Murkowski will win re-election in Alaska. This is another loss for former President Donald Trump, who endorsed Murkowski's Republican rival. Murkowski voted to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial. And also in Alaska, CNN projects that Democratic Congresswoman Mary uh, Peltola will win Alaska's at-large House seat, defeating Republican rivals Sarah Palin and Nick Begich. That's incredible that we're still getting in projections and uh, reporting on the midterm results. Okay, now, of course, it's a holiday where stuffing will make its way around the table and many of us will end up feeling, well, stuffed. So what's the best way to limit Thanksgiving overindulgence? And by the way, do we even want to limit Thanksgiving overindulgence? We have a new study about exercise, which is counterintuitive, and we're gonna share it with you next. (sighs) Turkey, gravy, stuffing, cue the food coma. Thanksgiving is a day of delicious overindulgence, but there's a new study that suggests if you're trying to control calories tomorrow, moderate exercise makes you hungrier than intense exercise. It's counterintuitive. And I also suggest no exercise, but that's a different story. Let's talk about this with Molly Jongfast, Timothy Naftali, Ron Brownstein, and Scott Jennings. Molly, what is your Thanksgiving strategy, or do you just succumb to the food coma? I mean, I just try to be normal. You're I, normal on Thanksgiving? Nor- you know, I, it's like eat pie every day, you know? I mean, <laughs> Wait a minute. You eat pie every day? Well, not every day, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, I eat a lot of pie, so when I'm presented with pie, I eat it. And, you know, I have a piece of it. I mean, I had some pie today already. Did so. you really? Yeah. This is a great life strategy, by the way. I wasn't expecting this, but I like where you're going with this life strategy. Okay, Scott, what's your Thanksgiving strategy? Do you just eat your face off? Do you try to control it? What do you do? Uh, I try to control it, but my main exercise strategy is to take a good long walk after the meal. Because if you walk after you eat, it like controls your blood sugar, brings your insulin down. And so my this exercise business... After after eating, after eating is where I'm going. Okay, that's good, Scott. It's not what the study suggests. The study says it makes intuitive sense that exercise would make us hungry, and often it does. In many studies, people who work out moderately by, for, exist- for instance, walking, end up peckish Ooh. afterwards and ready well, I'm to saying nosh. After. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not exercising before. I'm going <laughs> after. I'm saying as soon as I'm done eating, I'm going to walk like three miles and then pretend like it's all gone. Is what I'm, is <laughs> okay. What I'm doing. 
I like that. I like that strategy. Strategy, Ron. Tell us about your Thanksgiving strategy. I feel like I feel like I, I feel like I'm getting an explanation here because I am a pre-Thanksgiving meal. I mean, I, it's going to be 78 degrees out here in our house, and so you're you really know, rubbing I'm, it I'm, in. I'm, I'm, I'm going to slightly, uh, you know, I, I realize I'm grading on a curve here, but uh, I'm definitely a pre-meal. Uh, exerciser. And now, like, now I know why I eat myself into a coma every year. That's it. Because you're exercising. I feel like Stop I have scientific exercising. validation. Yeah. Either right. you have to exercise exactly. intensely. Maybe, maybe I need the Molly strategy of more pie and less exercise. <laughs> and it would be a more, it would be a more successful Thanksgiving. Can you ever go wrong with more pie? I mean, that, no. again, a life no. strategy. All right, Tim, tell us. It's very simple. Uh, you choose between potatoes and stuffing. My mother makes a great stuffing. You choose the stuffing. Why do you have to choose? Be- because then the turkey, then then it all falls apart. I mean, and then at that point, I mean, you're you're you are more stuffed than the turkey was to begin with. It's so and then you weird. can't enjoy the pumpkin pie. It's so, so I think I think you just make choices. Wow, Tim, that's that's a tough choice. Now, in my Italian family, our tradition was that we would have a pasta course before the turkey and stuffing and mashed potato meal. So when I brought friends home from college. They just truly ate themselves into a food coma. I was like, rookies. Like, they, they just slept yeah. the rest of the afternoon. So pasta before the Thanksgiving Ugh. meal, okay? That's, that's what the professionals <laughs> do. That's my core, Allison. That's right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right, guys, thank you very much. And, of course, have a delicious pie day. Sounds wonderful. Mm. And we'll be right back. Lisa Ling is back with a special new season of This Is Life, and this time she takes us on more fascinating journeys. In the first episode, Lisa explores how the loneliness of the pandemic era changed the fabric of human relationships and how some people are embracing non-human companions to fill the void. Here's a preview. Tell me about when you first became aware of Real Doll. Oh, gosh. Um, it was a special on one of the cable channels. Okay. And we're like, well, that's interesting. Before I brought her home, I wasn't sure what to expect. Opened the box, and I just went, <gasps> like that. I was just so taken back. And I felt her say, my name is Tasha. Take me home. Take me with you. She really heavy? She's about 60 pounds. And you must carry her around a lot, right? Or is she usually pretty stationary? Uh, she has a stand, or she sits in a chair like this. And you style her, you do her makeup, everything? Yes. Yes, I do. A lot of YouTube videos. You oh, a pretty good job. Oh, thank you. Lisa Ling joins me now, Lisa. Intriguing <laughs> and disturbing. <laughs> wow. Wow. That was, I mean, yeah. just tell us about this shoot that you went on. First of all, let me let me be crystal clear. That's his girlfriend, right? So this is his non-human companion. And, you know, Allison, our show has always tried to look at issues through a very unique lens. And this episode is no different. I will say that this is not an episode about sex dolls. It is about the relationships that all of us uh, are having with non-human entities. Most of us are not in relationships with with life-size dolls, but we are in relationship with our devices and the things that we can do and experience on them. And the truth of the matter is, 
um, with AI and these algorithms, they actually know us in some cases better than we know ourselves. They know what makes us happy. They know what makes us sad or excited. They know what, what kinds of things we like to buy. And in some ways, we're not even thinking for ourselves anymore. These, these devices, these algorithms are controlling our behaviors and con controlling our thoughts. I mean, you see how far uh, people are being pushed to extremes because the information they are receiving is essentially served on a silver platter based on the data that has been collected on all of our habits. So while we may not be in relationship with, with, with life science dolls, we are in relationship with our, our devices and what's available on them these days. I think that's a really interesting angle. And I think it's a really uh, fascinating way to look at what relationship means. But can we get back to the doll for a second? Because <laughs> I... I mean, I just, I'm fascinated by it, partly because she's actually a great girlfriend because she, yeah. you can project whatever you want onto her. She doesn't argue. She doesn't, you know. Well, and, and Allison, there are people, and, and this applies to the virtual world as well. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who suffer from severe social anxiety or have a debilitating fear of rejection. You know, whether it's a doll or it is virtual reality, you don't have to deal with those things. You are validated. You are loved no matter what you look like, no matter what you, know, what you, what you do, what you've done. You can, you can uh, specify whatever you're interested in, right? And so it's this constant stream of adoration, again, and validation. And VR is getting so good that at a certain point, we may never have to leave the confines of our own bedroom. We can travel. We can go to, to sports games. We can go to concerts. We can even have sex. And we can, again, we can, we can design exactly what our partner is going to look like. And so will we ever need to leave the confines of our space? And, and what does that say? What are the implications on the future of human relationships? when technology literally starts to take on a life of its own? I think not good. That's my theory. I'm just going out on a limb. I think not good. I mean, I think that it's intriguing, really intriguing. You present so many thought-provoking ideas, but I just think that it's better to interact with humans. But whatever, I'll reserve judgment until <laughs> I watch your special and I watch uh, This Is Life in the whole series. Uh, Lisa, it's always great. You, <laughs> I mean, your, your specials are so intriguing and I love even watching the teases for them and they just make us want to tune in. So this is- Thank you, Allison. Uh, the new it's always our objective to provoke thought. Yes, and you do it well. So this season <laughs> of This Is Life with Lisa Ling premieres Sunday night at 10 p.m. only on CNN. And you can find every episode of This Is Life because they're all great from previous seasons streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Great to see you, Lisa. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for watching. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everyone. Our, our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.